You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A new pledge is developed as part of a campaign to sell flags to schools, to have a flag in every school, which is a mixture of a business opportunity and also an attempt to spread civic pride by a school teacher, Francis Bellamy. The 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus reaching the Americas also helps bolster this movement of pride. Bellamy is a committeeman of the National Education Association, and he develops this new pledge. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Between 1888 and 1892, 26,000 schools buy flags. The pledge catches on. You will notice there is no reference to God in that pledge. That comes later in the 1950s by a presidential decree. What Bellamy says is, the true reason for allegiance to the flag is the republic for which it stands. And what does that last thing, the republic, mean? It is the concise political word for the nation, the one nation, which the Civil War was fought to prove. To make that one nation idea clear, we must specify that it is indivisible, as Webster and Lincoln used to repeat in their great speeches. The census in the United States said that the United States has a population of 62.9 million people, an increase of 25% since the 1880 census. The geographic center of the U.S. population is now 20 miles east of Columbus, Indiana, as people move out west. Ellis Island opens in 1892 and would remain the initial deparkation point for most European immigrants until it was closed in 1954. 12 million immigrants would be processed during that time. Chicago grew more quickly in the second half of the 19th century than any large city in modern history. It was the fifth or sixth largest city in the world. Its population increased by 600,000. The pinnacle of that is 1893 when the world's Columbian Exposition is held in the city and the first lines of the elevated railway system opened. Plans were made for interurban lines to join steam railroads connecting the city and its suburbs. Huge skyscrapers, or what would be considered skyscrapers at the time, started sprouting up. And the Sanitary and Ship Canal, constructed between 1889 and 1900, reverses the flow of the Chicago River. 
and the bicycle boom of the 1890s stimulated construction of paved roads from Chicago into the countryside. And something happened too in California. Northern California had so long been the key to that state, politically, economically, population-wise. San Francisco was everything there. You won the few counties around San Francisco. You basically won the state in most elections in the 19th century. But the expansion of rail service to the to California from the interior of the country had a result that wasn't anticipated by those that built the railroad because the western side of the railroad was financed and constructed by northern Californians, businessmen of San Francisco. But soon, the railroad link would lead to northern California losing its monopoly on the state. Why? Because Los Angeles, the first city of Mexican California, remained a sleepy village throughout the 19th century compared to the booming towns of the north. But local business leaders were determined that Los Angeles would not be bypassed. And when rail lines came south, the city voters agreed to simply bribe the Southern Pacific Railroad to bring the line directly to the city. This triggered a boom in the southern part of the state. And when the Santa Fe Railway also gave Los Angeles its own direct line to the east in 1885, the population went from 50,000 to 100,000. It doubled in the 1890s. Americans, with no thought of resettling to California, were still fascinated by it. And visiting California becomes a thing here. You can go on the railroad. Americans could see the natural wonders of California, scenic wonders that early miners and visitors have touted for decades. Redwoods, sequoia forests, waterfalls and cliffs. Daeda Wilcox donated land to help the development of a new place in Southern California. She had heard the name Hollywood from an acquaintance who owned an estate by that name in Illinois. She said, I chose the name Hollywood simply because it sounds nice and because I'm superstitious and Holly brings good luck. She recommends the name to her husband, Harvey Wilcox, who purchased 120 acres in February 1887 and uses that name through the 1890s to build a village 10 miles east of the city of Los Angeles through the vineyards, barley fields, and citrus groves that will have, by the end of the decade, a post office, a newspaper, a hotel, and two markets. A single-track streetcar line ran down the middle of Prospect Avenue from Hollywood to Los Angeles, but service was infrequent, and it took two hours to get there. You see the apparition of a man, a mustached man in a vest, holding his hat. He moves the hat from his chest to his side in a 19th century type greeting. Most likely, this is the first movie, a small film, approximately three seconds long, Dixon's greeting on a kinetograph. in which the viewer could see images, and the New York Sun described what they encountered. In the top of the box was a hole perhaps an inch in diameter. As they looked through the hole, they saw the picture of a man. It was the most marvelous picture. It bowed and smiled, and waved its hands and took its hat off, with the most perfect naturalness and grace. In 1893, Edison gets his patent, he builds a motion picture studio near his laboratory in Orange, New Jersey, dubbed 
Black Maria by his staff. It is encased in metal and made to be the darkest shade so that films can be made there. A tar paper covered dark studio with a retractable roof. One of his exhibitions show three people pretending to be blacksmiths. Later, Edison will film one of his assistants simply sneezing. These are the kind of things you could get away with in early 1890s cinema. People were just so amazed with the technology itself. The actual craft of making movies wasn't so important. Soon, the cinema, the motion picture house comprised of 10 kinetoscopes, opened up. The viewer would pay 25 cents to a half dollar to watch the films. In 1890, the largest cities of the country are New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, which is then its own city of 800,000 people, St. Louis, Boston, Massachusetts, Baltimore, Maryland, San Francisco, Cincinnati, Cleveland. That's your top 10. The largest city in the country is New York City with 1.5 million in 1890, then Chicago with a million hundred thousand, and then Philadelphia with a million forty-six thousand. By the time you get to the end of the decade, New York has grown more than double at 3.4 million. Now, this is because of the amalgamation of all of those cities, Brooklyn, what would have been Richmond County or Staten Island, the island south of Manhattan Island, Queens County, and the Bronx. All of that area joins New York City. Chicago grows to 1.6 million, larger than New York was in the beginning of the decade, but with that amalgamation, not enough to catch up, but it's growing. And the third largest city in Philadelphia, 1.2 million. So some interesting things. St. Louis charts really high during this decade. It's going to be in the number four and five position, only because Brooklyn is removed. Baltimore's charting high. Cleveland doubles its population during the decade. Newark, New Jersey is 16th largest city in America and 17th at the beginning and end, respectively. You got cities like Providence, Rhode Island, Jersey City, New Jersey, Louisville, Kentucky, Buffalo, New York, Omaha, Nebraska. They're all in the top 25. Reading, Pennsylvania, Worcester, Massachusetts, Patterson, New Jersey, Fall River, Massachusetts, St. Joseph's, Missouri, Toledo, Ohio. These are cities that are all in the top 50. Peoria, Illinois, Wheeling, West Virginia, the nail capital of the world at the time, are going to be in that top 100. Dallas was 75th on the list in the 1890s. Now it's 9th in American population. Houston, which didn't yet get its canal, isn't even showing up. Denver is there in a good spot at number 25, but beat out by places like Rochester, Milwaukee, Newark, New Jersey, Providence, Rhode Island. Of the top 100 cities by population, only seven are in the West. They include both San Francisco and Los Angeles and Tacoma and Seattle as different cities. It was almost called Flaglerville, Florida. But since it was on the Miami River and there was a local Indian tribe of this name, Miami, that name stuck. It's 1891. And a Cleveland woman, Julia Tuttle, decided to move south after the death of her husband, Frederick. She purchases 640 acres, north bank of the Miami River. And she wants this investment to work. And she's trying to get a Florida railroad magnate, Henry Flagler, to expand his rail line, the Florida East Railroad Company, south to this new area. 
it'll obviously increase her value. He's not interested at all. He's already running down to Palm Beach. But something happens to change opinions. December 1894, Florida is struck by a freeze, and it destroys entire citrus crops in the northern part of the state. There's another, February 1895, and people are really concerned. What is it with these freezing temperatures? But they notice something. Unlike the rest of the state, the area around this Miami River, where Tuttle had settled, is unaffected by the freezes. Tuttle writes to Flagler about this. Hey, wouldn't you like to invest now? Flagler doesn't believe it. Doesn't believe it. Everything's affected by the freeze in the state. Now she says, see it yourself. Well, he doesn't, but Flagler sends an aide, and the aide returns not only with a note uh, that confirmation, but also with a box of orange blossoms to show that the area escaped the frost. Flagler follows up, goes down there, and concluded, it's a go. Tuttle gives him 100 acres, and he extends his railroad to Miami and builds a resort hotel. Officially announced in 1895, already people are moving down there, thinking there's going to be jobs with the railroad and the new buildings, and also for investment purposes. It's July 28, 1896, when the incorporation meeting of this new town takes place. Anyone who resides in Dade County is able to vote. Most residents initially want to call this Flagler. Their gratitude for the person who brought the railroad to the area is such. He's adamant. He does not want a city named after him. So they agree. And on July 28, 1896, the city of Miami is incorporated with 502 voters present and voting. August 1896. George Carmack, Kate Carmack, Dawson Charlie, and others, who are all members of the Tagish First Nations Family Group in Canada, discover gold deposits in Rabbit Creek, Yukon, Canada. Soon, there is a great movement of people, of equipment, of animals towards the Klondike-Yukon region. And nearby, the American District of Alaska, which since the Andrew Johnson administration had been part of the United States. They wouldn't be alone. They stated their claim, but men from all over would head for the Yukon, as far away as New York, South Africa, Great Britain, Ireland, Australia, even people who were professionals, who weren't necessarily miners by trade, teachers, doctors, or even some local mayors who would head up to the Klondike to stake out their claim. Among the residents of the early camp, William Howard Taft. Not everyone got rich from gold, but it certainly contributed to the economy in a time when the economy needed it. The increase in the amount of gold helped with the money supply. New cities were created. Fairbanks, Alaska, and Anchorage, Alaska. And the population of Seattle, a town on the way, doubles from 47,000 to over 80,000 in the 1890s, and it triples in the next He seemed to shoot from a cannon, pedaling away like a steam engine, wrote the Brooklyn Eagles correspondent. Round and round the track whirled the colored rider. They were writing about Marshall Taylor, a bicycle rider born into a family of poor black farmers, then adopted by a wealthy white family and trained by bicycle celebrity Louis de Franklin Munger. 
who didn't believe in segregation and wanted to prove it. Marshall's friends knew him as Major, Major Taylor. His father had been a soldier in the Union Army. But the funny thing about his bicycle race held in Madison Square Garden in 1896 is that it's the championship and it's also his first time racing professionally. And it was one of the most watched races in the country. No one knew who he was. And Major instantly sailed ahead of everyone else. He was ahead of the man Eddie the Cannon Bald, a fast sprinter. A lot of the track folks also got involved in this newfangled bicycle racing sport. Here's how Michael Cranish described it in his book, The World's Fastest Man. The starter's gun cracked. Taylor took off leading for the first of five laps, and then another, and another. Taylor was ten yards ahead when he looked back at Bald and realized his lead might be shrinking. He pedaled furiously and then crossed the finish line. Or so he thought. He hadn't realized. It was a five-lap race. He had just gone four. This was his first professional one. It was the crowd yelling at Taylor that tells him, he's not finished, you're not finished. That gave Ball just enough time to pull up speed from behind. And he's just about to overtake Major Taylor when Taylor gets out of his too early victory stupor and tucks his head in an aerodynamic position and bolts forward. He seemed to shoot from a cannon a second time. Bald is too tired from his catch-up and can't. Two things happen. The crowd of New Yorkers cheers for Major Taylor, cheers for this new champion, and the band strikes up Dixie. Taylor was easily the hero of the evening. He wins a large prize, thousands of dollars. Bald makes, of course, some racist comments to a magazine. Holly G, that's tough. I got beat by the black boy that was carried around by Munger as a mascot. But the newspapers lit up with the story about the Major, they called him in New York newspaper talk. He sits on the wheel as if he were part of it, the Eagle said. Taylor wins the sprint event at the 1899 World Track Championships to become the first African American to achieve the level of cycling world champion and the second to win a world champion in any sport, following Canadian boxer George Dixon in 1892. He was also the national sprint champion in 1899 and 1900. He raced in the U.S., Europe, and Australia. He'd race until 1910. But he couldn't avoid prejudice. There was a lot of hooting and hollering wherever he went, even in Massachusetts. He races. He comes in second. Didn't even win the race. There's still jealousy. And the third-place contestant goes over and chokes him. Luckily, they're separated. Major Taylor's story is one of both the desire for speed in the 1890s and various races. You're going to see the first automobile race held in Chicago that's widely advertised. Also, story about African-American rights, their position, and the attempts that even as you have decisions like Plessy versus Ferguson, which are going to say separate but equal is okay, not everyone believes it. The Earth, which at first had filled nearly half their sky, was rapidly growing smaller. Being almost between themselves and the sun, it looked like a crescent moon. John Jacob Astor, who was a very rich man at this time in the 1890s, writes a science fiction novel 
a journey to other worlds, where he imagines a trip in the year 2000. He's writing this in the mid-1890s. To all planets of the solar system. And, and the trip is taken in this very 1890s type imagined contraption. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Here's what he writes. At that moment, at 9 a.m. New York, there was night there. The Callisto, their spaceship, was bathed in a flood of sunlight as never shines on Earth. The only night they would have was on the side of the Callisto, turned away from the sun unless they passed through some shadow, which they intended to avoid on account of the danger of colliding with a meteor. There were a number of 16-candle power incandescent lamps so that when passing through the shadow of a planet or at night after their arrival on Jupiter, their car would be brightly illuminated. They also had a good searchlight for examining the dark side of a satellite or exploring the spaces in Saturn's rings. Having lunched sumptuously on canned chicken soup and pheasant that had been sent to them by some of their admirers that morning, they put the bones in the glass can that had contained the soup into the double-doored partition or vestibule, placing a large sheet of cardboard to act as a wad between the scraps and the outside door. By pressing a button, They unfastened the outside door and the articles to be disposed of were shot off by the expansion of air. (laughs) It's kind of funny that they're using this cardboard and air pressure and things like that imagined in that day. We must be ready to catch the signals from the Arctic Circle. And yes, as Pastor writes, there's light signals sent from the Arctic Circle which they can pick up in their ship. In this blaze of sunlight, I'm afraid we can see nothing. The sun had apparently set back the moon, but then it shone. Generated by all the available dynamos at Niagara and Bay of Fundy, the steam engines and other sources of power in the Norman Hemisphere. So looking at geothermal power to send a signal to space. A beam lasted intensity for more than one minute and then spells out rapid sentences. Our telescopes and whatever part of the earth was torn towards you have followed you since you started. On your present course, you'll be in darkness till 1216 when we shall see you again. On receiving this last earthly message, the travelers sprang to their searchlight and, using its full power, telegraphed the following. Many thanks to you for good news about Earth and to Secretary Deepwaters for lending us the Navy. Result of good work, most glorious. The first thing that attracted their attention was the size and brilliance of Mars. Although this red planet was over 40 million miles from the Earth when they started, they calculated that it was less than 30 million miles from them now or five millions nearer than where it had been before. This reduction in distance and the clearness of the void through which they saw it made a splendid sight, its disk showing clearly. From hour to hour, its size and brightness increased. 
Not even did Columbus, standing at the prow of the Santa Maria, with the new world before him, feel the exultation and delight experienced by these latter-day explorers of the 21st century. So, John Jacob Astor does write this novel, and he has various things. They go hunting on Jupiter, huge crocodile-like reptiles that they have to fend off. But when they get to Saturn, it's quite different. They don't see any animals at all, and it turns out there's nothing there but spirits of animals that used to inhabit the place. So, it's an interesting little look at what space travel might be like. He culminates in even getting beyond the solar system, and they're traveling and seeing the solar system in the distance. And, you know, he figured that by 2000 we'd be doing this thing. He has all types of, like, limestone-based batteries and lamps and candles and technology that existed at that time that's going to be used to propel the, the spaceship, but we're not needing all of that. But it does give you that idea that when Man on the Moon in 1969, it happened then, but the idea of it was so much, you know, in the 19th century. Hiram Stevens' maxim builds something else, a flying machine, except it doesn't fly into the sky. It's designed not unlike a roller coaster on tracks. It's 145 feet long, and it weighs three and a half tons. Its wingspan is 110 feet. On either side, there are two 360-horsepower steam engines that drive two propellers. No one's in his machine. It rides on 1,800 rails, and it's actually prevented by rising by outriggers underneath and woody, wooden safety rails overhead, kind of like a roller coaster might be. It wanted to test if the machine could get lift off the ground, and it does. All of the outriggers are engaged, showing that the machine had exactly had enough lift to take off. But in doing so, it damages the track, and he abandons work on it. But the quest for a flying machine doesn't seem to stop during these years. Everyone wants to learn to fly. Lawrence Hargrave of Greenwich, England successfully lifted himself off the ground under the train of four of his box kites. At Stanwell Park Beach in New South Wales, Australia, November 12, 1894, he moors his kite line to a spring balance to two sandbags so he doesn't fly away. There was a sense that we were close to flight. When I say we, I mean Americans were close to flight. There were enough small gains to see that future. There were gliders, there were balloons, there were kites, there was motor power, and of course the bicycle, which is not new in the 1890s by any means, but perfected in use to office workers getting to work on bikes, very common in the 1890s. That had already broke the limitations of human travel. The British Army establishes a balloon section of the Royal Engineers. The Imperial Russian Navy established aerostatic parks balloon parks on the coast of the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. America was also interested, and its main investment came through the Smithsonian and the work of Samuel Pierpont Langley. He flies an unmanned flyer, the Aerodome No. 5, from a spring-actuated catapult mounted on the top of a houseboat on the Potomac River near Quantico, Virginia. He does this several times. In one of these launchings, his unmanned flyer 
goes 3,300 feet at 25 miles per hour. And it splashes in the Potomac because in order to save weight, it was not equipped with landing gear. Langley's name is all over a lot in Washington, D.C., and a lot in aviation. He had the support of the establishment in aviation experimentation in America. But he would never get much farther than these unmanned flights. While Orville and Wilbur Wright were in the 1890s working on their designs, testing elements, testing various controls, levers, mechanisms that could turn bicycles into airplanes. But right now, they're unknown outside their local Ohio bicycle shop. Someone else that's involved in the budding movement behind flight, airplanes were invented, is a figure you wouldn't expect. Wild Bill Cody. Those Wild West shows made him already famous during this period, but his real dream was taking to the sky. For him, the solution was not kind of what the Wright brothers had, which was a kind of winged, lightly motored glider, evolved from a glider, and it was not what Langley was trying to do, was to use maximum force with a powerful engine. For him, it was kites, man kites. And he came up with a system of not just one kite and not even just one box kite in squares, but a group of box kites that in tandem could take up a man in a wicker basket, involved double Hargrave box kites with wings that added additional lift. The wings had scalloped edges on the... He makes this during the 1890s. He won't patent it until 1901. Was what Wild Bill Cody doing flight? The humans were raised in his experiments, but control was still an issue, and keeping the flyer up was still an issue, just like with all the aerial experiments of the 1890s. Yet Cody was so thrilled with his invention that he would demonstrate it for the British military. And the British were interested. It was proposed that the passenger could be outfitted with a telescope, a telephone, a camera, firearm, and lifted to an an altitude of 3,500 feet. Even before true flight was invented, the peacemakers were already worried. The Hague Convention of 1899 prohibits military aircraft from discharging projectiles and explosives, but permits the wartime use of aircraft for reconnaissance and other purposes. We talked about Winston Churchill, but it's not that Winston Churchill. Indeed, there is a Winston Churchill who was an author from Missouri, an American, who wrote novels. And if in 1890, if you were in the United States in particular, and you said something about Winston Churchill... No one would say anything about a man in the United Kingdom or in Great Britain. Um, they wouldn't know what you were talking about if that's what you're referring to. They would think you were referring to, to the author, Winston Churchill from the United States. And he wrote a series of popular novels and was a celebrity of, um, of the 1890s. Speaking of celebrity, that was a novel that he writes and, It's called The Celebrity. John Crocker's been a friend of The Celebrity. It's an author, probably Richard Harding Davis, and Churchill's kind of poking fun at uh, the whole celebrity concept. John Crocker's been a friend of The Celebrity long before he becomes famous. During a summer retreat at a resort, he runs into The Celebrity, who, to escape fame, has taken the identity of another man so that he can be anonymous. The Celebrity meets Irene Trevor, the daughter of an Ohio State senator, and asks her to marry him, and she accepts. 
When a female he perceives is more desirable, Marion Thorne arrives at Asquith Resort. The celebrity leaves Miss Trevor without breaking off the engagement. That behavior goes against the moral fiber of the celebrity's writings and stories in all of his books. Both women know his true identity as a famous writer. So does John Crocker. We never learn the celebrity's name, but we do learn that if you're going to assume an identity, make sure it's not someone who looks like you and definitely not an embezzler, which is what happened. The two Winston Churchills did eventually meet and decided over a meal that the British Winston would use his middle initial and the American one would not. Um, one of the interesting bestsellers from the 1890s, and there's a bunch of them. And the sad thing is that a lot of the books of the 1890s have gone away. You know, there's certain Mark Twain, The Innocents Abroad would have been big during this time. But other books, The Story of Ab, which is about a caveman, you know, for, for children. Science fiction, H.G. Wells and the like, was very much part of the 1890s. And the connection between technology. In the 1890s, there was this electricity and magnetism and other discoveries in science. The fiction evolves into, well, what if these things are extended? Where would it be? The Awakening, Kate Chopin, Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, The Invisible Man, H.G. Wells, Sherlock Holmes novels. In 1899, Sigmund Freud publishes The Interpretation of Dreams, introducing his theory of the unconscious with respect to dream interpretation. In 1890, A Hazard of New Fortunes is released by William Dean Howells. It tells the story of Basil March, who finds himself in the middle of a dispute between his employer Dreyfus and his old German teacher, an advocate for workers' rights, when he is an employee of a newspaper and he sympathizes with the workers' cause. And it's one of the I don't know the first, but uh, probably the first major novel to deal with the strife caused by class differences and to present workers' rights in a positive light. He writes another book in 1892, The Quality of Mercy, about the individual and the social order. It's a story of an embezzlement by an insurance executive for a high sum of money, leaving various victims in trouble. At Sundown is published by John Greenleaf Whittier, and it's going to become his last book of poems. One of these is The Vow of Washington. It's actually read on 1889, but included and published in this book, so would have been available for 1890s Americans. The Vow of Washington. The sword was sheathed in April's sun, lay green the fields by freedom won, and severed sections, weary of debates, joined hands at least, and were the United States. O oh, city sitting by the sea, how proud the day has dawned on thee, and when the new era long desired began, and in its need the hour had found the man. The Sioux leader Sitting Bull is killed in 1890, around 5.30 a.m., December 15th. Police officers and four volunteers approached Sitting Bull's house. They surrounded it, knocked, and entered. Lieutenant Bullhead told Sitting Bull that he was under arrest and let him outside. Sitting Bull and his wife noisily stalled for time, of course knowing that the camp would awaken and men would converge at the house. As Bullhead ordered Sitting Bull to mount a horse, he said the Indian affairs agent wanted to see the chief. 
and then Sitting Bull could return to his house. When Sitting Bull refused to comply, the police used force on him. It should be said Sitting Bull was not active at the time of the 1890s. In 1885, he started touring and leaving the reservation to go with Bill Cody's Buffalo Wild West show. He earned $50 a week at the time, a high amount. Sitting Bill also traveled and gave speeches about his desire for education for the young and reconciling relations between whites and the Sioux. After working Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, he returns to the Standing Rock Reservation, the agency, where there's a lot of tension. During a time of harsh winters and long droughts, an Indian named Uvoka spread a religious movement from Nevada eastward to the plains that preached a resurrection of the native. It was known as the Ghost Dance Movement because it called on the Indians to dance and chant for the rising up of deceased relatives and the return of the buffalo. The dance included shirts that were said to stop bullets. When the movement reached Standing Rock, Sitting Bull allowed the dancers to gather at his camp. He didn't participate, but he was viewed then as a key instigator. Alarm spread to nearby white settlements. In 1889, Indian rights activist Carol Weldon from Brooklyn, New York, a member of the National Indian Defense Association, the NIDA, reached out to Sitting Bill, acting to be his voice, interpreter, and advocate. She joined him at the reservation, sharing with him his family home. It's now 1890 and James McLaughlin, the U.S. Indian agent at Fort Yates on Standing Rock Agency, fearing that the coded leader was about to flee the reservation with the ghost dancers, orders his police to arrest him. It's December 14th. McLaughlin drafts a letter to Lieutenant Henry Bullhead, an Indian agency policeman, including instructions to capture him. The Sioux in the village were enraged. A close quarters fight erupted. Catch the bear, Lakota shouldered his rifle and shot Bullhead, who reacted by firing his revolver into the chest of Sitting Bull. Another police officer shot Sitting Bull in the head, and he dropped to the ground. The Lakota then killed six policemen immediately, while two more died shortly after the fight, including Bullhead. The police killed Sitting Bull and seven of his supporters, along with two horses. Wild scene. Squaw's death chant heard in every direction. A telegram sent after the killing. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Another issue that's not solved in the 1890s by any means, but at least comes out a bit, cracks the surface a bit, is homosexuality. It's at least being spoken about in the 1890s, even if the way it's being spoken about is as an otherism, or if they're merely characterizing homosexuality as a bad event or a bad break for an incorrectly married woman, such as in Alan Dale's A Marriage Below Zero. The book is told from the point of view of Elsie, pretty, frivolous English girl who falls in love with the handsome Arthur. They marry, and Elsie gradually comes to realize that she is in competition for Arthur's affection with Arthur's male lover, Captain Dillington. Elsie engages a private detective, provides her with an address in Notting Hill. She goes there and finds the two together. Arthur then leaves Elsie. And Elsie travels to Paris, where she believes Arthur and Dillington have become involved. They have, and there's a scandal about it. The tragic part is she goes to the hotel, where she believes Arthur is staying, only to find him dead in his room. He has committed suicide. So, the issue is addressed, but it's addressed only as a tragedy. As a tragedy for the marriage, and a tragedy for the person. You have a few of these Place. Henry Blake Fuller, Chicago-based writer, writes a play at St. Judas, which deals with homosexuality. It's the first known American play. It's about a homosexual who commits suicide at the wedding of his former lover. First play dealing ex- explicitly with the subject. You see the subject being broached. Of course, Walt Whitman is a an area of common language for uh, men who are homosexuals at this point. Um, but even Whitman himself while he's still alive, in a correspondence with John Addington Simmons, who's asking him directly if some of the words in his poems involved homosexual union, he cannot say it directly. He writes back, I've had six illegitimate children. He felt that such an interpretation was abhorrent. Needless to say, by the way, none of the children that he, Walt Whitman, referred to in his letter to Simmons have ever been found or traced even after the most industrious researches. 
One might say that homosexuality in the 1890s at least was known that it was out there. And while opinions in the mainstream are mostly negative, it could be talked about if it was done in a melodramatic fashion or something like looking at another. There's a book from the 1880s uh, that's well read in the 1890s, Psychopathia Sexualis. And it provides the theory of homosexuality as a disease and concluded that most homosexuals have a mental illness caused by degenerate heredity. We look at that and say, that's wrong. But that was an improvement over just saying it was some actions that that people could control. Nonetheless, this book aroused the anger of the church. It also is the first book to use the terms heterosexual. So to have a word that describes something in the 1890s they would have seen as normal, giving it an actual word separate from homosexual and the word bisexual first in this book. In Germany, there is a petition to the Reichstag to abolish paragraph 175, which makes homosexuality, unnatural sexual offenses, illegal. In Italy, the laws are decriminalized as part of a liberalization of Italian laws generally. In Britain, of course, the trial of Oscar Wilde results in his being prosecuted under the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 for gross indecency. And he's sentenced to two years hard labor in prison. New York had several bars and really a large area in the village and the Bowery in that city where homosexuality was accepted inside. And it's confirmed in later memoirs and publications. It would have been known and discussed by many in the city at the time. The dismissive term given to bars and saloons and dancing halls where men would dance with men were called fairy resorts. Because they were nestled in slum bars where prostitution went on and things were kept quiet anyway, they had a bit of protection, though patrons might be frequently fined by police for disorderly conduct. It could be discussed and was written about if it was with a sense of otherizing and shock. As one writer who was horrified wrote, not only are degenerates in these saloons, but boys and girls get into these places to watch these horrible things. It even made newspapers like Pulitzer's World, a group of men banding unspeakable jests with other fashionably dressed young fellows whose chiefs have been roged and whose manner, he noted, suggested the infamy to which they had fallen. An investigator in 1899 said there were at least six of these fairy resorts, saloons, and dance halls on the Bowery alone, the Palm Club, the Manila Hall, the Black Rabbit on Bleecker. A visitor from North Carolina who was slumming with a friend visited several beer gardens in the mid-1890s on the Bowery and said that there were males dressed in elaborate feminine evening costumes, sitting for company, and received a commission on drinks sold to customers. Nesbitt writes about this in the next decade. He's intrigued. It's a medical student along with this friend kind of visiting and seeing how odd New York City is and invites one of these men, Princess Toto, to his table and describes intelligent conversation in which the whole system was revealed. There was a complicated society. There were balls that would be held every year. Nesbitt writes about it again. That's a decade later in a more positive fashion. What would you have been reading in the 1890s? And we've talked a bit about it. We've talked about authors like Richard Harding Davis, Winston Churchill, the American Winston Churchill, 
Stephen Crane, Mark Twain, and they all would have been on the list. You would have still had Horatio Algier, even though his um, first big book, Ragged Dick, was uh, the 1860s. He was still writing into the 1890s. In fact, one story, The Telegraph Boy, we believe was written at some point between 1896 and 1904. And it's like a lot of his stories, a boy who comes from the country to the big city and with the help of some leading successful men makes out pretty well in the world. 25 cents to begin the world with, reflected Frank Kavanaugh, drawing from his vest pocket two 10-cent pieces of currency and a nickel. That isn't much, but it will have to do. The speaker, a boy of 15, was sitting on a bench in City Hall Park. He was apparently about 15 years old, with a face not handsome but frank and good-humored, and an expression indicating an energetic and hopeful temperament. A small bundle, rolled up in a handkerchief, contained his surplus wardrobe. He had that day arrived in New York by boat from Hartford, and meant to stay in the city if he could make a living. Next to him sat a man of 35 shabbily dressed, who clearly was not a member of any temperance society. If an inflamed countenance and a red nose may be trusted, Frank Kavanaugh's display of money attracted his attention. For small as was the boy's capital, it was greater than his own. Been long in the city, Johnny? I only arrived today, answered Frank. My name isn't Johnny, though. It's immaterial. I suppose you have come here to make your fortune. I shall be satisfied with a living to begin with, Frank said. Where did you come from? few miles from Hartford. So, the long and short of that little interlude is going to be that the bum ends up um, getting the young man to buy a meal for him and exhausting all of his funds. But through the kindness of others, he gets a job as a telegraph boy, actually ends up becoming a detective, and then getting a special bonus from the head of the telegraph company for solving a case. And he becomes essentially successful and is able to send money home to his parents. That's the telegraph boy. Um, Horatio Algier is a writer that's known today, but little less known as George Aid. And George Aid writes stories and were, which were turned into a book, Fables in Slang, that had kind of a sarcastic lesson in them. The Fable of the Martyr, who liked the job. The Fable of the Professor, who wanted to be alone. They mock all the personality types of 19th century America. Once upon a time, there was a brilliant but unappreciated chap who was such a thorough bohemian that strangers usually mistook him for a tramp. Would he brush his clothes? Not he. When he wore a collar, he was ashamed of himself. He had pipe ashes on his coat and vest. He seldom combed his hair and never shaved. Every evening he ate an imitation dinner at 40-cent table de haute, with a bottle of writing fluid thrown in. He had formed a little salon of the geniuses, who were also out of work, and they loved to loll around on their shoulder blades and laugh bitterly at the world. The main bohemian was an author. After being turned down by numerous publishers, he had decided to write for posterity. Posterity hadn't heard anything about it, and couldn't get out of an injunction. He knew his works were good, because all the free and untrammeled souls in the spaghetti joint told him so. He would read them a little thing of his own about wandering in the fields, and then 
he would turn to a friend whose face was all covered with human ivy and ask him point blank, Is it or is it not better than the Dooley stuff? There is no comparison, would come the reply, coming through the foliage. This sure enough bohemian was a scathing critic. If Brander Matthews only knew some of the things said about him, there would be tear marks on his pillow. My, he was caustic. The way he burned up magazine writers, it's a wonder they didn't get after him for arson. One day, while standing on the front stoop of his boarding house, trying to think of someone who would submit to a touch, a flower pot fell from a window ledge above him and hit him on the head. He was put into an ambulance and taken to the hospital, where the surgeons clipped his hair short in order to take three stitches. While he was still unconscious and therefore unable to resist, they scrubbed him with castle soap and gave him a good shave and put him into a snowy white gown. His friends heard of the accident and went to the hospital to offer condolence. When they found him, he was so clean and commonplace that they lost all respect for him. Moral, get a good makeup and the part plays itself. And you thought that Netflix was the only place that you could binge. But if you were looking at the Century magazine, which would have been a popular, if expensive, and probably middle class, maybe you'd say progressive, even liberal, urban magazine in the 1890s, really runs from the 1870s until the 1930s, when it's discontinued. A squarish, thick magazine that is illustrated. You would have saw at the top of the 1890 issue, Beginning in this issue, The Anglomaniacs, a serialized story. That was very common. That was very common. The back of the issue has an ad for Traveler's Life Insurance and brags of its assets of $11.5 million. Royal Baking Soda and Epps Cocoa are also advertising. It has stories that wouldn't look so good these days. A pro-British article about the vigor of the English race, about how the English are doing well with their polytechnical schools for the average person. Harvard graduates I have known would be articles. Tales of New England, the life of Nathaniel Green. But serialized stories are what kept people buying issue after issue of the Century and other important magazines. The Century magazine in 1891 publishes an article, The Distribution of Ability in the United States. It doesn't age well. I think we today would see it as very stereotypical. Um, it looks at the Dictionary of Contemporary Biography of famous people, statesmen, clergy, artists, scientists, educators, naval leaders, engineers, musical musicians and actors, and groups them by nationality, groups them by race. That's the term they use. But when they say race in the Century Magazine in 1891, they are talking exclusively about white races. It breaks down the ability or people who have reached the biographical dictionary by what nationality they are. 856 were English, 129 Scots-Irish, 57 French Huguenot, 45 Scots, 39 Dutch, 37 German, 15 Welsh, 13 Irish, 1 Scandinavian, 1 Swiss, Swiss and 1 Spanish. It also looks at regions. The South was strong in statesmen, but not in other areas. Virginia had the most statesmen, along with New York and Massachusetts. 
Atlanta, Georgia, 1895. There's a significant event. The International Exhibition in Atlanta. It's going on, and there are people from all over the world, and many people from northern states visiting this southern city. And the organizers there aren't sure if local white southerners are ready for this event. But they decide to do something radical for the time. They pick an African-American speaker, and they decided on Booker T. Washington. He was the leader of the Tuskegee Institute, a teaching college, vocational college, for African-Americans in Alabama. He was also a teacher who had built a national network of his own, of educators, ministers, editors, businessmen, well-known. And his network expanded not just African-Americans, but political leaders of all types, and philanthropists, too. His movement was critical for promoting the education of African Americans in the South quickly, promoting vocational education. He speaks to this audience, and really, it's an African American voice speaking out to whites with his take, and it is his take, and there will be plenty of disagreement with Booker T. Washington on how things should be. He states the obvious. One-third of the population of the South is African-American. You cannot be successful without dealing with us. But the crowd that came included some white citizens of Tuskegee, where Washington was based out of. And many of them surprised because they expect to hear the South roundly abused. But there was no abuse. One of the metaphors that Washington employs is that We could be as separate as the fingers, but same as the hand. No race can prosper, he says, till it learns that there is as much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life we must begin and not at the top. Now, should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities? Now, he's trying to do something here, and I want to say that a key ask of Washington, which is not really fulfilled during this decade or even later, is safety and guarantee of opportunity of people. He's not just giving this away in his speech, but, um, and I also want to say that while it might sound silly to say, well, we'd rather be in a field than a poem, remember that almost the majority of the country is involved in agriculture at this point. So it's not something like today, where it would be seen as demeaning as it appears. Booker T. Washington was adamant, it's a hard matter to convince an individual of anything while you're abusing them. And so he will not in this speech abuse Southerners, but he will criticize, he says, when necessary. He suggests almost apologizes for criticizing, and this is a criticism of a speech for progressive African-Americans getting into political power soon after Reconstruction. He almost apologized that African-Americans were so quick to take political positions in various southern states. He's apologizing in some manner for at least the way Reconstruction was conducted. But he said, look, we had no choice. It was an emergency situation after the Civil War. Newly enfranchised voters... Politics was seized on because there wasn't enough vocational education to do other things. That's part of what he's saying. In the South now, Washington states, African-Americans are able to participate in the commercial world 
and make the leap from slavery to freedom. The masses of us, he says, will make our living through the production of our hands. And we must begin at the bottom, he says. We must begin not at the top. 16 millions of hands will either help pull up the South or will help you pull down the South. Give us the opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory. That's more important, he says, than the opportunity to spend a dollar in the opera house. That's Booker T. Washington's attitude. It's a compromise speech. It's called the Atlanta Compromise. He doesn't use that term, but he essentially says, give us the opportunity, give us the education and safety, and we'll be a little less political. We'll show you, and we'll make the South a boom. Boom. We'll make it a successful region. We'll help you build. That's very controversial. A biggest critic of this address and critic of Washington in the future will come from W.E. Du Bois, who's starting now as an educator, as a um, academic. He does a study on African-Americans in Philadelphia that is one of the first sociological studies. Du Bois says Booker T. Washington's speech was just an invitation to violence on the part of white Southerners. People never get anywhere until they start fighting for their civil rights. Instead of trying to compromise, push, push. Austrian William Röntgen notices that there's a shimmering from his bench while he's conducting experiment. He speculates that he's discovered a new type of light ray. And he temporarily names them X-rays because it's something unknown. He planned to have a better name. Others will later call them rontograms, but the name won't stick. The rays themselves were interesting to scientists, and there are things that x-rays can do, but the more interesting thing long-term was the images it improved. While investigating the ability of various materials to block or stop the ray, he noticed when he put a small piece of lead into position while the discharge is occurring, he sees an image, his own flickery ghostly skeleton. About six weeks after his discovery, he took a picture, essentially a radiograph of this, using x-rays of his wife, Anna Bertha's hand. Her reaction to seeing her skeleton, I have seen my death. I want to thank you for listening. This is the third of our 1890s podcast series and uh there's going to be a fourth keep listening remember to um help us out give us a review on apple podcast itunes wherever you listen to podcast tell a friend about our podcast uh, join the fans of my history can beat up your politics on facebook all of these things are helpful